uh, before we jump into our study tonight, I came across something that I thought was um, uh, was a great article that I wanted to share with you and um, pertinent to what we've been uh, working through, um, dealing with the, um, and maybe it's possible, I'll read this and you'll say, uh, that really has nothing at all to do with what we're talking about, but I'll make the connection for you before I read it. Um, you know, we've been working through some, uh, at, at times, some very difficult theological concepts. And it's very easy to get into some of these things and say, this really is of no significance to me specifically. Um, it's, it's hard to think about these things. Um, and at the end of the day, in terms of me and my sanctification and growth in the gospel, uh, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Um, now, I, I think I could answer that in a lot of ways. Um, one of them is to say that it grows us in ways that we may not realize. Every sermon you hear, every Bible study you attend, every time you're gathered with God's people and praying, we are being added to. And we may walk out of here tonight and forget everything we talk about, um, but... Um, by the work of the Holy Spirit within us, as the time is right, we will be reminded of these things. This happened to me many, many times. I'll study something and completely kind of space on it, but then something will come up in real life that I need to deal with, um, and the Lord reminds me of what I've been able to study and discuss and hear preached and everything else. So um, it's adding to us in ways that we uh, we don't often realize, and I... It also feels like at times we're, you know, obviously we've been very slow going uh, through uh, what we've done thus far, and I, I've been promising you it will speed up, and it will. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm reminded of, I know none of you can, well, Sam lived in Minnesota for a while, and Jeff uh, in Colorado, but most of you don't have any kind of um, uh, ability to um, to work through this uh, in practical terms, but... Um, we can think of, uh, as an illustration, our growing in the Christian life is somewhat like um, starting a little snowball at the top of a hill. And as it rolls down the hill, um, it is very slowly but surely getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, those are individual little snowflakes being added to this thing as it's rolling down the hill. And, you know, if you get a little snowflake... Just one individual flake, it certainly doesn't look like all that much. They're beautiful, um, but uh, by themselves, if one flake lands, it's going to land and melt. Um, but as it's being added to and rolling along, it's, uh, it's growing and increasing. And by the time it gets to the bottom of the hill, you can compare that to what was at the top of the hill and say, I didn't realize it was growing, but now that I look back, I realize it's significantly larger. In a lot of ways, these types of studies are doing that. So, you know, um, for us, we're going to have a lot of milestones, and that's kind of every time we get to a new paragraph in the confession, uh, we've kind of hit a milestone to say, uh, let's look back over all the things that we discussed, and how has the Lord grown me? How has he shaped me? What ways have I been uh, taught um, in areas that I never knew about before, or perhaps I did and it was kind of tightened up or added to, um, that are more significant now than they were before. Um, so I've even had conversations with um, 
Uh, I'm doing some of this same study with uh, some of the guys from Christ Center Reformed Baptist Church. And one of them told me just the other day, he said, you know, I, I know it's important to know the doctrine of God and specifically things like that were most difficult, uh, like the section, God is without body parts and passions. Um, he said, that was very difficult for me. Um, and I didn't know how to apply that. Um, and he said, but he was in a conversation with someone who started talking to him about how they were having a hard time, but uh, it was all going to be okay because they knew that when they cried, God was crying right alongside them. When they suffered, God was suffering alongside them. Um, and that what's most important of all that God is, is that God loves us and his love is applied to So, you know, this is... Uh, what this person was saying, he said to me, was a great summary of um, the negative of everything that we have discussed and worked through in a very practical way. So for some of us, perhaps, before we've gone through this, to hear someone say, well, God is, God is suffering with his people or God is crying with us or whatever else, that may sound like something that is not all that big of a deal. Um, especially when we think of uh, Jesus in his suffering and not knowing how to differentiate uh, with regards to his human, human nature versus his divine nature and all these things put together. So I, I just want to encourage us that what we're doing really does matter a great deal. And, um, and so I, I'll probably say the same sorts of things each milestone we hit because it's important to stay focused over the long haul because what we are doing uh, will take quite a, quite a bit of time. Um, so all of that to say, I have this article, and I think it's, um, it's important speaking into the context of the importance of not only having God's Word, but knowing God's Word and using God's word within the proper context. Not the, con- not the context perhaps you're thinking of in terms of biblical, uh, literal, historical context, those sorts of things, but within the context of God's local church as he has designed it and what he has designed it for. Um, so I, I'll tell you up front, the author says a few things um, good about preachers. I'm not reading this to you to toot my horn or anything because I, quite frankly, don't even come close to measuring up to this man who wrote this. Um, but uh, this was a very uh, helpful to me as we think about uh, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And uh, as always, he writes with a very intriguing title. And this is by Carl Truman, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary in California. And the article is entitled, The Gospel is Insufficient. So all of a sudden, you know, our bells are going to go off because... Uh, that's all we ever hear is the sufficiency of the gospel. So what is he talking about? So let me read this to you. <clears throat> At a seminar I gave last week, I used, a tr- I used a tried and true method when facing a crowd outside of my usual comfort zone. Three points nobody could disagree with, a fourth point that might have raised some eyebrows, and a fifth that sounded downright heretical. Always good for waking up the back row at the end of a long lecture. The fifth was simply this. The gospel is not sufficient to ensure the continuation of the gospel. The point is one which emerges clearly from the life and thought of Martin Luther. 
Luther is interesting for a whole number of reasons, but one of the most important is for his understanding of the times in which he lived. That is key to seeing why he is different at numerous points from other reformers. Luther was heir to, uh, to the acute sense of end-time expectation that one finds in the late medieval church. For him, the Reformation was the recovery of the gospel at the end of time, and he clearly expected it to carry all before it. Thus, in 1520, perhaps the year in which he seemed to have had the greatest confidence in public in his message, his language brims with confidence. The Babylonian captivity of the church can be ended. The shackles by which the papacy was bound, the empire can be shattered, and Christians can be truly free. Just let the word loose and all will be well. By 1525, of course, the picture starts to look bleaker. Protestantism is beginning to fracture. The protagonists in the Peasants' War appropriate uh, the democratizing language of Luther's theological revolution and turn it into the battle cry of violent social upheaval. And the simple declaration of the gospel is becoming mired in the quicksand of human affairs. From 1525 onward... One must search hard for the language of universal priesthood in the writings of Luther. The gospel on its own, without careful attention to the kind of structural context advocated by Paul, could quickly be appropriated by the, uh, by the chaotic and sinful ambitions of fallen human beings. Thus, from 1525 onwards, Luther drops the ambiguously democratic rhetoric and starts to talk more of church order and offices. The insufficiency of the gospel is surely why Paul, when writing to Timothy, does not simply tell him to preach the gospel. Yes, he certainly does tell him that, but as the aging apostle looks at the world around him and wonders how the gospel is to be preserved after the first generation of leaders directly commissioned by Christ dies out, he also tells Timothy to find ordinary men to appoint as elders. In other words, Paul sees that a church structure, as well as a church message, is vital to the safeguarding and propagation of the gospel. For Paul, the gospel is not in itself sufficient to ensure the continuation of the gospel. It needs men to preach it. It needs men, women, and children to tell it to their friends. And because all of these agents are fallen, it needs a church structure to help safeguard its content. This is not to say that preaching the gospel is rocket science. One error we can make is to assume that only a few highly skilled individuals can preach the gospel. The world is full of very good gospel preachers who, for one reason or another, nobody has ever heard of beyond their local con uh, congregations. I enjoyed a very large conference last week, but without any disrespect to the men who spoke at the sessions, I can name a dozen men who are just as fine at gospel preaching, but who will never be on a giant stage or preach to more than a maximum of a few hundred people or much fewer on a Sunday. Preaching is not an arcane skill given only to a score of men worldwide. If it were, Paul would have told us. In fact, he does not say to Timothy, find a few highly skilled men with media clout and hand the matter over to them. Not at all. What he essentially said is find men in your congregation who are trustworthy and true, who if they have families have run their households well, who have a good track record within the church, who are respected by outsiders and who are competent to teach and trust them with the gospel. It's a fantastic uh, little short treatise of the importance of, as we look at the gospel, 
there's a whole lot more that we need to know about what God has told us with regard to um, getting the gospel where we want the gospel to be. So I bring all this up to say that a lot of what we will see in the church today, particularly in uh, circles that either call themselves Reformed or are or however you want to define that word, um, that really focuses on what's most important and all we really need to focus on is the gospel. Gospel-centered this and that, and so there's a whole market of books called gospel-centered whatever. You just tie the word gospel to it, and it's going to sell a million copies, and everyone's going to think it's the greatest thing ever. Um, the problem is that everything else, like all of the stuff we're talking about, and to include uh, what Carl Truman points out with regards to the church and its structure and the proper propagation of the gospel, those things start to fall off. And so what's going to happen when we stop worrying about the doctrine of God? What happens when we stop really caring about uh, the impassibility of God and just say, well, it's all about the gospel? That's, that puts us in a really bad place. <coughs> and so all of these things are important that we continue to uh, persevere in doing the hard work to dig as Christians because, as he says in here, it's not only the job of preachers to preach the gospel, but it's also the job of Christian men, women, and children to tell their friends about the gospel. Well, how do we do that? It is not simply, um, it's not only, I should say, it's not only focusing on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There's a whole lot more that goes into that. Lest in the end we get to a place where we say, well, they say they believe in Jesus, and that's what's important. There's not a whole lot of meat on the bone there. Um, and when life happens, particularly suffering happens, uh, we don't have anything to rest on. So I just want to encourage us in our continued study here, and, um, and hopefully it has been beneficial to you, and I hope it continues to be. Um, so tonight what I hope to do is finish up um, paragraph 1 of uh, chapter 2. We only have a sh very short section there, and uh, if we have time, we'll begin in paragraph 2 um, of, uh, of chapter 2. Um, so where we will uh, pick up is at the end of pac uh, paragraph 1. Um, we are in the section... Uh, it says, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. So uh, we've done some of that already. We are going to pick up uh, with abundant in truth. Abundant in truth. So... God not only possesses truth, but what can we say if God is abundant in truth, according to the doctrine of divine simplicity, what can we say about God with relation to truth? Okay, good. God is truth. So the truth of God is displayed in that he is faithful to his word. And there are many scriptures that point to that reality, 
<coughs> and I think any Christian should be able to point to that reality in their own experience. Um, he knows how all things truly are. So if there's, um, that's, that's to deal with uh, even physical matter. He knows exactly how it is and what it is. That deals with circumstances where there may be a cloudy understanding by us or there's a mystery to be solved. Uh, the Lord knows how it truly is. He knows the facts and he knows not only the facts, but all of the heart that has gone behind it, all of the intentions, all of the sin, all, or all of the truth and goodness that has resided within. Um, so man is only able to accurately describe with his limited knowledge that is provided by God what is good and right and true. We've talked about that many times that as it relates to God, we can only understand him to be incomprehensible. Uh, because there's so much that God is and uh, forever will be, so much that God knows um, that we will never be able to fully grasp. Um, and yet at the same time, the Lord has revealed to us certain things that are true. And so the truth that we hold to um, is truth, uh, absolutely, uh, but it is very much limited. What's that? Someone say that? Oh, I thought I heard someone say that. Maybe it's my daughter making noise. <laughs> um, I'm hearing voices. <laughs> so Job reminds us in Job 37.16 that God is perfect in knowledge. He's perfect in knowledge. There's nothing to be known that God does not know. And he's never mistaken. He's never uninformed. And since God is true, if we say God is truth, then what can we uh, what can we say about His Word? Okay, the Word is truth. What about our interaction with the Word? What can we say, or how we look at the Scriptures? Okay, we can trust the Word. What? Yeah, we can believe the Scriptures. We can trust that when God says, I am going to do something, that he's going to do it. <coughs> not only because he's proven himself faithful, he need not prove himself faithful to be true. We simply know that it's true because he has said it is. Um, so the promises of God that are yet unfulfilled, we, as the apostles did in their writings, we count them as already completed. They're completed in the mind of God. Um, they are fulfilled and final in God's ultimate decree. And therefore, in the same way, we can count them as good as complete, as good as done. God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. He cannot lie. Therefore, all that he says is absolutely true. So something else we can conclude is that since nothing informs God of the truth, God doesn't need to be informed. He doesn't sit in any classes and no one lectures him or teaches him anything. Um, and all that he says is truth is as it is because God has said it. So when God says something, it's true because he says it. 
and he is truth, and therefore the only thing that comes from him is truth. Thank you. Uh, So whatever fails to conform to what God has stated is not true because it's a contradiction to the one who is abundant in truth and is indeed himself truth. So I want to share a statement from Wayne Grudem here I think is helpful to us. As we think through, as we think true thoughts about God and creation, thoughts that we learn from Scripture and from allowing Scripture to guide us in our observation and interpretation of the natural world, we begin to think God's own thoughts after Him. You ever thought about that? So, when we have true thoughts, when we think on something that is true, we're simply thinking God's thoughts after Him. We're thinking of those things that God has already declared. The psalmist says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! And so we can recognize that when we have, uh, when we have truth in our minds, in our hearts, uh, being worked out in our lives, that we can delight in the God who has provided that to us. The truth is God's truth because God is truth. And this should encourage us to pursue knowledge in all areas. And this is something, through the ages, some Christians, I think, have fallen flat on. And it's been unfortunate. And something for us to consider as we deal with our non-believing friends. All areas of study are important and pertinent and valuable in terms of pursuit. So all of the sciences are a worthwhile pursuit for the Christian. Why? Okay, so we're growing in our knowledge of what God has done through creation. Therefore, we're becoming, we're gaining more of a mind like Christ, right? What other, what other reasons why maybe that might be important to us as Christians, Josh? Other about, and, uh, sure. So to, yeah, to give it, to give a defense uh, in opposition to lies. Yeah, good. Absolutely. So science is not an enemy of the faith uh, so long as the science that's being completed is true because God has created the conditions in which those things can be studied and experimented on and everything else. Sam? Sure. It's a great argument against the charismatic movement too. (laughs) Um. One of the things that's lost in our culture today is something that um, some of us are trying to recover, and that is what um, has become known as, um, as classical studies. So classical thought, um, and we're dealing with you know, all of the great writings of the Western culture and uh, philosophy and um, poetry are the two areas here, but... Uh, and theology falling in the area of poetry. But these things have have been these building blocks um, of which the church has found very valuable uh, since the very beginning. Um, because in the thought of the old philosophers, you, you talk of, you know, um, 
Plato and Aristotle and Homer and all of these um, who uh, many of you have probably at least heard of and hopefully read some of maybe, um, their understanding um, was that all of these things that we study today, completely distinct from one another, were very, very interconnected. So in Christian thought, you take this classical type of understanding of the world and you take uh, Christ and infuse, uh, infuse him into all of these studies and we recognize that everything is theological. Life is theological. So when I am uh, working on a plane, uh, avionics uh, job at Gulfstream, um, what I'm doing is inherently theological in nature. Hey, girl. <laughs> because Christ is informing me as to what is good and right. The Holy Spirit is helping me to understand what is true. And if it's true that if I do this type of work, the plane's going to function, and if I do this type of work, it's going to fail, the truth involved in making it function is, in, is ultimately from God. It's some knowledge that God has provided. It is a common grace, as, um, as Sam mentioned and as we have uh, we've talked about previously, that God has given that knowledge even to, uh, to those who are far from him. And through his general revelation, he has helped us to see um, that, uh, that truth exists in every area of life. And so, uh, for the most part, our, um, the way that we see, um, I won't go on a long tangent here, I promise, but uh, educational systems are set up primarily in our culture to deal with all of the subjects that we study as individual isolated thoughts. That's you across the board from kindergarten on through the highest levels of education for people to get their doctorates and PhDs and everything else. So <coughs> everything becomes very isolated. And so my studies in math have nothing to do with my studies in literature, which have nothing to do with my studies in history and of course, none of this has anything to do with my studies in theology and the scriptures. couldn't be further from the truth. But that's the way that we've worked toward, and therefore we've lost the interconnectedness. And then you hear Christians talk silly talk when they try to make science and faith enemies of one another. Uh, when they try to make uh, the studies of, um, of literature and things of that nature um, something that's not worthwhile of pursuing. And it certainly is. Uh, we just simply need to know how to think about it. So all of this fits in this category of God um, being absolutely true and recognizing that all that God has provided that is true is from him, and we're simply thinking his thoughts after him as we think about the truth. It's a very encouraging thought, I hope, for all of us. Any comments on that before we move on? Yeah. Right, sure. So it goes both ways, right? So oftentimes Christians are, um, we are looking to what the world is saying is true and we just simply adapt that because we'll look at it and say, oh, the evidence is overwhelming. Well, if it's contrary to Scripture, then we're saying something else about the Bible at that point. Um, but the opposite has also been true throughout the history of the church and you hear it in um, some corners of Christianity today, um, is that... Um, 
a false, wrong understanding of certain things of Scripture they hold to be true when everything else is saying uh, this clearly is not. Um, so, for example, um, in ancient days when um, some in the church uh, were adamant to say that the world is flat. Well, that's, a, that's something that um, a lot of those who are opponents of Christianity like to talk about. Well, they were wrong about this. Yeah, they were wrong about it because the, the scriptures themselves talk about the world being round. Um, God has declared that the world is round, so theologians um, who foolishly talked about it being flat uh, weren't paying attention to their Bibles. Um, so the church has been guilty of going both directions. So we need to be very careful and always tie this back to the truth of the word. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a good descriptor to use with regards to what hell is like, you know, as we think about that. If we think of even the order that exists here on earth, um, it's, it's void of that. So it is absolute chaos um, because um, in the midst of suffering, uh, uh, eternal suffering, there's also absolute chaos as um, each does their own uh, ordeal. So um, it's... You know, as you start to talk about those things, some of it gets very difficult and abstract and assumptive. But nevertheless, we have this picture of absolute chaos within uh, within the realm of hell, which is unfathomable. As good as we think heaven will be and know it will be far greater, um, we think hell will be bad and it will be much worse than we could ever imagine. Um, and reasons like that that we don't often think of being part of that. All right, well, let's, uh, let's push on to this last section. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will be no, by no means clear the guilty. Um, so I've condensed all of this into one uh, subject heading uh, in a very short section here because um, the judgment of God and... Um, and redemption and all these things are going to be dealt with uh, later in the confession. So um, if you want to look at Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, you're going to see where the writers of the confession draw from uh, in dealing with this uh, specific area. Exodus uh, 34, it's verses 6 and 7. If someone can read that for us, please. Thank you. So this is a passage I like to use when I'm talking to people about the gospel. Exodus 34. Because the way that God presents himself and what he will do here um, appears to be a massive contradiction. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But then he says, he will by no means clear the guilty. So how do those two things go together? Because if our theology is right, who's guilty? Everyone is guilty. So how is it that God by no means clears the guilty, 
but at the same time uh, is gracious, slow to anger, and forgiving, and all of these other descriptive attributes that God has used. Well, this is a great opportunity to, a great passage to use to present the gospel to someone. There's only one answer. So to natural man, it seems implausible that God could, could do both. Um, and if we understand the justice of God, we have to recognize that every sin must be punished. There's no way around it. If God is just, then every sin deserves death. It only took one sin to throw all of creation into the fall. Um, so what we see is God upholding both aspects of his nature in, um, in this passage. So what is this speaking to? Well, obviously it's speaking to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And so we can point to this and say, he's, you know, there's, this is absolutely true. God is all of these things, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he doesn't clear the guilty. The guilty are punished in one of two ways. Either they pay the penalty of sin on their own for eternity, or Christ has paid the penalty for their sin and has bore the entire punishment. So, in essence, we could say the penalty that was ours to pay for eternity was paid by Christ. And so, when we talk about the atonement, the, the work of Christ on the cross, I think often we don't consider the fact that I was destined, sort of, um, for an eternity in hell. That was my desire. That was my, um, that was where I was um, wanting to go. That's what I certainly deserve for eternity. And so the penalty that Jesus paid was an eternal penalty. It wasn't something like, you know, Jesus died on the cross and, you know, he bore this physical punishment. It was horrible and it was enough to pay for the sins of all the people um, that he would save. Um, beyond the physical aspect, which is very small compared to the spiritual aspect of what was happening between the Father and the Son. And we have to recognize that in Jesus paying an eternal penalty it is far greater than anything any sinner will ever endure in eternal hell. Which is significant um, because I think we think too little of the suffering of Christ on behalf of his people. Because we can't even fathom what exactly happened there as he bore our eternal penalty, not simply something that happened in a few hours and was over. Josh? In, in what way? Okay. Yeah, we'll deal a great deal with that in the confession, um, particularly as we deal with the covenants. But in short, we can say um, the people in the Bible, no matter Old or New Testament, uh, were not saved in different ways. Their salvation is very much the same. Um, Christ died for his people in the Old Testament um, very much the same way as he's died for us. Um, they were simply looking forward to the coming of the Messiah 
And so all of the sacrifices of bulls and goats and rams were simply, um, if you think of uh, a year by year, uh, the Day of Atonement was rolling their sins forward one more year until the cross. And so they were rolled onto the cross. And Christ paid that penalty on the cross for them. And then looking forward, we're, we look backwards to the cross to see the penalty for the sin has already been paid. So that's the sh- very short answer. Yeah, sure. It's just a matter of uh, timeline, really. Uh, but Christ's accomplishment was the same for them as it is for us. It's a distinctive of Reformed Covenant theology, actually, because there will be those who try to argue that the blood of the animals was in some way, or the works, the law-keeping of the people was in some way salvific. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a, that's a big part of their theology. But... Um, over and over again, through Romans and Hebrews and Galatians especially, everything's saying quite the opposite. That's not the case. Um, so what I want to challenge all of us in this, in just looking at Exodus 34, is as we read through the, New Te- or the Old Testament, uh, look for the gospel. It's there. It's present. It's right, it's right here. It's very easy to see that uh, because of the... Um, uh, the juxtaposition of what is stated about um, God and his interaction with people and sin. Um, other times it's not as obvious, and maybe it be in a larger, a larger story of redemption or something in the Old Testament. But the gospel is everywhere throughout the Old Testament, and we can find it if we look. And oftentimes it's couched in this type of language that we see at the end of paragraph one in our confession. So... <coughs> I want to end there and give us, uh, we have only a couple of minutes uh, tonight, and hear from you as you think through everything we've done through this paragraph of our confession over the last long time, um, (laughs) probably seven months, um, what has been most helpful, beneficial to you, what challenged you the most, what has... um, yeah, I think you get the point. So, go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a great point. Good. What else? Sure. That can get discouraging. You know, when we get we get really deep in the weeds sometimes and say, I feel completely lost. I don't know what I'm I don't know what we're talking about. Um so if you were getting an exam at the end of it. That's one thing, but we're not. So we can just rest and delight in the fact that, you know, God is, is teaching us and helping us along the way. <laughs> just stay home. Well, you just get a zero for staying home. <laughs> Might as well give it a shot. It's better than a zero. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree with you. Um, you know, there there is chapter one, which is on the scriptures, but they have to deal with that first to get us to where we, you know, deal with what the scriptures say <laughs> um, about God. And, but from here on out, after we finish chapter two, um, it's pretty smooth sailing in a lot of areas because you just there's not a lot of, there's not as many weeds to get deep into uh, because a lot of these things aren't incomprehensible. We're dealing with an infinite God, so it takes an infinite amount of time. (laughs) And we could go on and on. 
so I'm done at Ephesus Church, and someone replaces me, and they take over and keep going right where I left off, and we would never finish the study of the doctrine of God, which is amazing. So, <laughs> I well, I kind of thought that Donnie was among that generation, so. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, the spirit of truth dwells within each of us. And so, you know, again, this stuff builds and encourages and helps and informs. And I don't, you know, if I ever ask you what the sermon was about and you don't remember, I don't, I'm not discouraged by that because of that very thing, that I know the Lord's doing something. In that moment, preaching is an event, and there's a moment that happens there where God is... Um, by the Holy Spirit doing something then and there. That's why I'm adamantly opposed to sitting in front of a TV screen and watching a preacher because the event is not happening. The Holy Spirit is functioning in this, what we call a means of grace, um, to where all of these things are being added. The very same as we sit together and the Holy Spirit is helping us think together uh, through these things. So it's very important and helpful. Absolutely. We're just trying to connect the dots. <laughs> That's what we're doing here. So, Well, praise God. I'm grateful you're here, and we'll, um, we'll jump right into paragraph two next time we meet. So let me uh, pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for the richness of our study over the last several months, and I'm um, so thankful for your people who have been diligent with their time to be here and have the heart and the, the joy and the gladness in their gathering with us here. And um, and so I pray, God, that you are doing this work that we've spoken of tonight to continue to add uh, your word to us, making us more and more uh, complete in Christ, giving us more and more of the mind of Christ as the spirit of truth dwells within us and, and works in and through us. Uh, so, Lord, we pray that all that we have uh, worked on and discussed and thought about and forgot and all of these things, Lord, uh, are not in vain, um, but that you remind us of uh, what's right and true uh, when the time is right, uh, when, you, um, when you desire to give us great encouragement and hope in your steadfastness, in your immutability, and uh, in your goodness and all of these other attributes and, um, and doctrines we've discussed and have been helped tremendously by. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your, uh, your people who throughout the ages of the church, old and new, um, have um, seen fit to uh, record all of these things for our benefit. And uh, we thank you for preserving them and giving them to us. Uh, not only the word of God, which we uh, find to be most important and the only infallible uh, and uh, true source of all that you have communicated. Uh, but, Lord, alongside that, you've given us many helps, and we are thankful um, that, we can, um, that we, can be, uh, we can be guided uh, by faithful uh, men of the ages. So, Lord, uh, thank you. We, we pray now that you bless us as we return home in the remainder of our week, uh, that we work hard uh, for the sake of your glory, that we rest well, and that, um, that you are honored in our lives as we depart from here. We love you, we praise you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.